Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's April 5th, 1887, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. I knew that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. So wrote Helen Keller, arguably the most famous deaf-blind person of the 20th century, about this day in 1887, when, as a child, she was taken by her teacher to a water pump to feel the water running over her hands. And she says she suddenly understood in that moment what water was. Yeah, the woman who had been teaching her, Anne Sullivan, had been trying actually for about a month before she arrived at this particular pump and pumped the water into her hand and spelled out the word for her to understand. But she had been so frustrated by these previous attempts. Unsurprisingly, given that she was, you know, a seven-year-old child who was coming to terms with the idea of a whole new kind of expression. I mean, Sullivan's description of the seven-year-old Helen Keller is so funny when you think, you know, she obviously went on to become so inspirational and so active... But the idea that she was this seven-year-old who was a real force of nature, you know, Sullivan wrote in a letter to a friend that in stark contrast to the sort of Victorian idea of the pale, sickly invalid, she was just this rush of emotion and feeling. And as soon as she saw Sullivan when she arrived at her home for the first time, she threw herself on her. She was feeling her hands and her dress, trying to get into her bag. She said there's nothing pale or delicate about Helen. And so much of their early relationship it was about trying to get a handle on Helen as as a person rather than trying to teach her anything because her tantrums were so extreme and wild. And in fact, the, the, the moment that her parents realised we need a teacher to help Helen was when she locked her mum in the pantry for a few hours. <laughs> like, we need, to, we need to educate her, you know, because she mm. doesn't... How can we explain to a deafblind child that you can't pick up a key and lock someone and run away? Her education progressed really quickly and she went on to be admitted to the Cambridge School for Young Ladies and then ultimately to Radcliffe College at Harvard University. I mean, it's an astonishing achievement even to get communicative in the first place, but then to go on to have a tertiary education, to shine and then to start being recognised by people, which I suppose was also connected to the fact that she was an interesting character because of the disability that she'd overcome. But nevertheless, her thinking was so complicated and her ideas were so progressive that she really captured people's imagination. Well, I think that came partly from how she was educated because she had to think in an abstract way about what a thought was from the Mm. earliest age in a way that people who pick up language by being around it don't. So she describes in her autobiography, A Story of My Life, which I'm listening to at the moment as an audiobook, 
the One Direction version is better, but she says in there <laughs> that the uh, the thrill of returning thought occurs to her when she realises mm. that, quote, everything had a name and each name gave birth to a new thought. So before that, it's just nouns, isn't it? Like like doll, mug. And then there's, there's sort of sit and stand and things you're doing, but it's all based on things you touch. The idea of having mm. a concept is divorced from her understanding of things because it doesn't involve touching it. So there's this moment where she's trying to learn what love is and she asks Sullivan, is love the sweetness of flowers? Because she couldn't at that age understand anything unless she had touched it or smelt it. Mm. I'm happy with that as a definition of love. (laughs) 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 The sweetness of flowers, fine. (laughs) It's quite romantic. And because Sullivan had made this decision from the start that she was going to not just spell out single words, she was going to spell out whole sentences. She used this system called fingerspelling, basically making the signs of letters into the recipient's hand. And it's obviously one of the major ways that deafblind people can communicate. And so she spelled out whole sentences. Her reasoning was that when you have a a hearing child you don't just say single words to them and point at things you know you talk around them fluently all the time and even though toddlers can't form sentences like that themselves they understand them you know if Mm. you say give mummy the biscuit they'll do it even if they can't say it they They might not do it Rebecca I mean I'm the only one who doesn't have kids I assume when you tell a kid to do something they just do it right it's very unusual lock mummy in the pantry (laughs) that works I found yeah and Anne Sullivan's letters are so amazing when you start seeing how incredibly painstaking it was there are these moments of breakthrough this is the moment that Helen's starting to acquire these more complex thought processes and grammar she says um, they've gone to town and a man gave Helen some candy she said when we reached home she found her mother and of her own accord spelled give baby candy mrs keller spelled no baby eat no helen went to the cradle and felt of mildred's mouth and pointed to her own teeth mrs keller spelled teeth helen shook her head and spelled baby teeth no baby eat no meaning of course baby cannot eat because she has no teeth but it's astonishing as well how many different forms of communication she had to pick up in her life she later learned to inverted commas hear people's speech through using a thing called the todoma method which meant using her fingers to feel the lips and the throat of the speaker she also became proficient using braille the one that really blew my mind is that within a couple of months of Sullivan's arrival she was teaching Helen to write in pencil when she was seven years old and quite a lot of that determination was being driven by by Keller herself. For example, once she graduated, she continued her work in trying to be able to enunciate using her voice. This ultimately led her onto the less mainstream side of her uh, life and the sort of the, an early part of her income, was, which was that she joined the vaudeville circuit. And she and Sullivan together began this five-year stint to supplement what was at the time their, their rapidly dwindling finances, where they hailed her as the eighth wonder of the world. And she basically just performed this 20-minute show where she told her life story in her own words. But we've talked about this before, haven't we? How the first public figures who have any kind of disability, particularly in the United States of America, particularly around the turn of the last century, ended up in sort of freak show context, right? The way from kind of premature babies through to Chang and Eng, the original Siamese twins. It's sort of inevitable in that sort of era, isn't it? That if you're introducing your difference to a world who hasn't encountered it before, they're likely to contextualise that in this carnivalesque way but that doesn't mean as we look at it now the tastelessness of that environment is to the fore because mm. they didn't i mean it's silly to sort of make this comparison but it's true they didn't have television so whereas now it would be a kind of 9 p.m show on channel 5 it's exactly the same here put your mm. feet up look at this person who's different to you 
there's that undercurrent, but that doesn't mean that you then watch the show and don't feel by the end of it sympathy, empathy, understanding for what they've been through. And, and that's possible, I think, on the vaudeville stage. It's just you hear about it now and you think, God, were they forced to be sort of sideshow performers? But I don't think it was quite like mm. that. Yeah, like all throughout her life, she had to put up with people who are questioning even whether she actually had those disabilities. As you reminded me of Chang Yang, the Siamese twins, you know, then they got into that fight when a doctor wanted to examine them on stage. Mm. It was mm. the same thing. You know, people said that somebody with her disabilities couldn't possibly have learned as much as she did. I mean, she learnt French, German, Greek and Latin. Learning to even write <laughs> and read English would be is like such an achievement that's so hard work. And yeah. then to be admitted to Radcliffe College, she had to be proficient in the classics as well. So she was learning dead languages, living languages. And her lectures had to be fingerspelled into her hand in live time, which obviously oh meant gosh. that she couldn't take notes until after. She would have to wait till the end of the lecture and then rush home and try and write down as much as she could. Well, this was the amazing thing that she then went on to have these really radical and well thought through positions political and social. For example, she was an early suffragist, she was a pacifist, uh, she was a birth control supporter and an early supporter of the NAACP. But ultimately, particularly when she expressed her socialist ideas, some of the people, especially newspaper columnists who had previously been praising her courage and her intelligence for having overcome her uh, disabilities, now kind of turned on her. There is a criticism though, isn't there, that because of all those incredible achievements, her story is often packaged up in a way that some disabled people now call inspiration porn. You can be a famous disabled person if you have, quote, overcome adversity. You know, it's a bit like the Paralympics, isn't it? The rest of the world is interested if you've done something that's incredible and superhuman. And of course, that is amazing. But at the same time, true equality for disabled people would be when disabled people can talk about things other than their disability and are considered yeah. interesting. And or when they do talk about their disability, they talk about how incredibly hard their life is and they haven't overcome it. And she didn't do yeah. that. She offered people a slightly sweetened version of her reality that the whole autobiography is essentially peppered with and then I overcame this and then I overcame that. And some people also say that the fact that she's remembered particularly as a little girl, especially in this moment where she's learning water through the flowing of water over her fingers and the spelling out in her hand, is infantilizing and reduces particularly her contributions and achievements as an adult to something less significant. And I think that that is important, that we don't just remember her in that moment as a seven year old girl as actually she's recalled in a statue at the Capitol in Washington but throughout the rest of her life and all the other things that she did. It's fascinating to hear her voice by the way because she did learn to speak in a fashion. There are videos of it on YouTube. I'll, I'll put one in the show notes so you can hear her. I'm not going to be tasteless enough to try and imitate it but you know when deaf people speak you have that slightly strangulated sound. What's interesting is her accent sounds almost Scandinavian when she talks and it's because of course, she's never heard an Alabama accent. Oh, that's really you know, interesting. She's from the South, yeah. but you'd never guess she was from the South yeah. because she's never heard the accent being told to her. It's all been tapped out on her fingers. So English, at its most sort of foundational point, sounds sort of Scandinavian. Sounds Northern European. So, yeah. It's official. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Tomorrow. And the price point was absolutely right. I mean, he could have charged whatever he wanted, but you got 100 shots for $10. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.